Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. The Hoover Institution at Stanford University is one of the nation's preeminent research centers. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. As we begin taking the steps that will lead us out of this crisis, I hope you find value in these important discussions as we look, for, look forward to ways to mitigate the potential effects that the coronavirus has had on the U.S. and on the world. As a reminder, we will be taking audience questions and encourage you to submit yours using this, the button at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from Larry Diamond, who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Larry has advised the USAID, the World Bank, the UN, the State Department, and other governmental and non-governmental agencies dealing with governance and development. His recent books include China's Influence and American Interest, and Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. Larry, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you and with all of our audience. Yeah, let me jump right at your, you're an expert on China and on uh, democratic institutions around the world uh, and methods of governance. So let me just jump right into the middle of this. Um, you know, several leaders within the Chinese Communist Party have claimed that their government has performed well relative to democracies in the world, both in controlling the spread of the virus within China and providing aid and critical supplies to other nations. Has the current pandemic been a boon for authoritarian regimes like China? and their reputation for dealing with pressing social problems. Well, Tom, thank you. Uh, I don't consider myself an expert on China, but I have been trying to understand uh, what it's been doing to project uh, inappropriate power around the world and to repress its population at home. And I don't think you need to be an expert on China to uh, know that uh, the claims it's making are false. Uh, and the challenges it's posing to democracy uh, have a lot of holes in them. So let's begin with how this virus started. <laughs> we know it began in Wuhan, and it uh, became, it went from being uh, uh, a kind of early uh, crisis that needed radical containment to becoming a global pandemic because China was not transparent with its own society or the world about what was happening. Uh, and those who were trying to ring the alarm bell about the inception of a virus uh, that could be very dangerous to human life were punished and suppressed. And ultimately one of these Chinese doctors, of course, lost his life, many of them, fighting uh, the epidemic. More globally, uh, Tom, I think it's very important to recognize, uh, first of all, that we don't know what the death rate in China is because uh, we can't believe any of the statistics they produce. They're all manipulated. Uh, and second of all, we do know what the death rates are in democracies around the world because they're transparent in the assembling of data and information. Uh, and that record shows very wide variation among democracies in the world in how they're managing the crisis. Uh, so in Spain, you've had over 500 people per 1 million population dying from the virus, over 400 in Italy, over 300 uh, in Britain, uh, and nearing 200 in the U.S. 
but some countries have had very little impact on human life. Uh, Israel has had only 25 deaths per 1 million, South Korea only 5 per 1 million, and Taiwan has had under one death per 1 million. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been the greatest success story of, of any uh, country in the world in managing the virus. Mm -hmm. So democracies vary a lot, and I think the lesson here is not to just take Chinese propaganda on its face, but rather to look and see why have some democracies been doing better than others. Before we move on to the other democracies, because I want to ask you what explains the variation in success across the democracies with respect to the disease. What about China's claims of providing critical aid and supplies to other nations around the world? What's the validity of that claim? Well, they've been sending planes and personal protective equipment and face masks and so on, but it's been nothing at the level that they promised or ballyhooed as a propaganda initiative. And um, good, thank you, and so on. But in some cases, people open up the boxes and they find that, which has often been the case with their Belt and Road Initiative, that what they deliver is a lot less than what they promise. Mm -hmm. And some of the materials have been of distinctly inferior quality and people feel a little bit cheated. Yeah. Interesting. Let's go back to uh, talking about the cross-country variation within democracies of success in thwarting the, the pandemic. Uh, I would imagine there's some Democrat, dem demographic uh, variables that explain the variation. Is, I want you to focus also, though, on, on the differences in governance across these countries and how that may affect their ability to combat the virus. Well, I think... Uh if you study uh, what countries like Taiwan have done, and we're gonna have a very deep dive into that uh, one week from now, Tom, when the Hoover Institution will uh, uh, host at 9 a.m. Pacific, uh, a really uh, extensive uh, policy discussion of the Taiwan experience in managing uh, COVID-19. We'll have the vice president of Taiwan uh, and the Secretary of State's uh, Science and Technology Advisor uh, speaking to us along with several other panelists, including our own Lani Chen. But what you learn from the Taiwan experience, from South Korea, from Israel, uh, some of these other countries uh, like Germany and in Scandinavia, that early warning made a big difference. And where countries responded very rapidly and very vigorously with public health measures and public education measures, they were able to get ahead of the virus and often uh, contain it through identifying the sick, isolating them, uh, contact tracing, screening at the airport, and so on. And early and widespread testing uh, made a big difference as well uh, in a number of these countries in different ways. Taiwan was doing testing uh, of people uh, in terms of their temperature and, and movement and so on. Uh, Korea manufactured quite a lot of uh, viral uh, tests that they applied very early. Taiwan, Korea, Israel, they've been using big data to try and track the pattern of the uh, virus. And the countries that, the democracies that have had success also have some other common features. They have strong public health systems, uh, their populations tend to be healthier with long life expectancy uh, and lower levels of chronic diseases. You know, 
One of the things I worry about in the United States that if you look at the advanced industrial democracies in terms of one indicator uh, of uh, public health, which is the rate of obesity, mm -hmm. U.S. rate of obesity is 36%, which is twice the level or maybe 50% higher than many of our peer advanced industrial democracies. So we have some work to do. And these successful democracies were able to acquire and widely distribute face masks, hand sanitizer. They pushed their public health experts out there in front to be the authoritative voice uh, in coordinating a response. And they elicited or they started from the beginning with higher levels of uh, public trust and confidence and therefore cooperation than in some of the other democracies. Interesting. Good, good starting discussion. Uh, I, I know you're an expert on the governance around the world, and in particular, you study the emergence or, or the contraction of, of the use of democratic institutions in countries. In fact, a few years ago, you coined the phrase a recession in democracy to kind of characterize the rollback of the growth of democracy around the world. What is this pandemic doing to this constant struggle between democracy and authoritative regimes around the world? Well, what it's doing is deepening and accelerating the democratic uh, recession in some alarming ways. First of all, you have authoritarian regimes seizing on the public emergency of the crisis to become even more uh, comprehensively and persistently authoritarian. You saw that Vladimir Putin, it was to be expected that he was going to do this, but he used the crisis to eliminate term limits so he can stay in power into his 80s or beyond. You've had uh, Hungary, which had already crossed the line to authoritarianism, pass a, um, a measure in the parliament that gave Prime Minister Viktor Orban decree power and suspended parliament and by-elections, and the prime minister can now rule by decree. You've had countries banning newspapers, arresting opponents and critics. Even India has been using the emergency to prosecute uh, critical journalists and intellectuals, including uh, the brother of one of our uh, esteemed uh, Hoover fellows, Tunku Farad uh, Jaran, um, his brother Siddharth, who uh, edits a major uh, Indian online newspaper, uh, is being prosecuted for just kind of reporting the truth in a critical fashion. So you have illiberal democracies and authoritarian regimes seizing on the crisis to narrow freedom. Mm -hmm. And then there's another thing we can talk about if, if you want, Tom, it's something we all need to ponder, which is the uh, challenge to human freedom mm -hmm. that comes from even liberal democracies like Korea and Israel implementing these tracking and surveillance apps on mobile phones. Uh, and what happens if those don't go away after the crisis? Yeah, I would like to talk about it. Let me frame it. Uh, just to remind everybody, we're listening to Larry Diamond, who's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. We're talking about uh, the effects of COVID-19 on democracies and authoritarian regimes. So a big part of the screening, tracing, tracking, quarantine strategy that a lot of countries are using is what many of us might consider to be invasive surveillance by the state uh, of the location and health conditions of a citizen. and the imposition of restrictions on them based upon gathering that data. Um, you know, it seems on the one hand, that's sensible. It makes a lot of sense to try to combat that health challenge. 
but it does create some problems. And I know you've thought about the problems and I think you've thought about ways to mitigate those problems. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Well, I, I'm glad that um, uh, since our, our watchword is ideas uh, defining a free society uh, at the Hoover Institution, this is a pretty important problem uh, from the standpoint of human liberty. Um, the problem in part is that these methods work. Um, they have helped states identify where the virus is cropping up, who has it, who they've been in contact with, then you can alert the people they've been in contact with. It does automate and speed up uh, the contact tracing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, governments can use them to monitor people for other reasons. And what happens when we surrender our privacy, surrender our, uh, uh, our, our, our freedom from state surveillance, and then we don't get that freedom back mm -hmm. uh, after the crisis. So I think we can't, you know, we can't trust governments, even very liberal governments, to surrender uh, these tools after the crisis is over. First of all, I think we should have a debate about to what extent people want to surrender their freedom even now. But in particular, after the crisis ends, and while it's going on, I'd say we need independent review boards of respected jurists, civil society leaders, religious and ethical leaders, uh, who can monitor what the government is doing and the claims the government is making and uh, get authoritative information from the mobile phone companies about how they're using these applications so that we can have a full and frank discussion within the society about how much freedom we want to surrender and when that surrender should be terminated and returned to the people. Yeah, the, the three democracy you mentioned has been successful in managing this, South Korea, Taiwan, Israel. Yeah. Uh, at least two of those had very aggressive tracking and tracing techniques involved. Did they, how did they navigate the, uh, the civil liberty, the democratic governance concerns associated with that? Well, uh, <laughs> I think this is uh, very much a matter of debate now uh, mm -hmm. in, in Korea, uh, where the current president, Moon, has a lot of popularity and... Um, at the moment, strong support. And in Israel, you know, Israel is a very uh, kind of independent-minded society. Yeah. Uh, and um, people are concerned uh, that the methods that have been used by the Israeli intelligence organization, by the way, Shin Beth, to track terrorists are now being used to, uh, to track the virus. Yeah. And so I think this is ongoing. I think maybe the problem is less serious in Taiwan because they had such enormous success uh, in um, containing the virus very early on yeah. and um, in reducing the infection rate to pretty close to zero. And of course, it's easier to do if you're an island state, but nevertheless, right. it required strong public health coordination and vigilance and early action. Right. So I think they haven't, the, the compromise of individual 
freedom uh, in the temporary emergency uh, has not been uh, such an imposition on people. Yeah. Larry, I don't know how much you know specifically about some of the apps or technologies that allow tracing, but I had a couple questions that are interesting. Joseph suggests that uh, these apps or technologies could could be built with self-destruct systems so that they would automatically expire, you know, at a certain point, six weeks out, eight weeks out. Uh, and I'm wondering if you've heard that discussed as a way to balance the civil liberty with surveillance issues. Neville makes the following claim that the Google Apple effort around contact tracing is claimed to protect individual privacy. Do you know much about that and how, how does it protect privacy? I don't know how they do it. I uh, know that they do it. And I know that one way to ensure uh, greater privacy is to use uh, immediate neighborhood Bluetooth connections yeah. to identify who you're in contact with rather than the more centralized uh, cell phone system. I see. Uh, so some of the apps are. Um, limiting uh, the exposure to, uh, in terms of freedom by relying on the more neighborhood uh, immediate geographic uh, connection of Bluetooth. Yeah. Um, with respect to the self-destruction, I love that. I think that definitely all legal and technological steps toward eclipsing liberty have to have sunset clauses attached to them. Yeah. And it can be a, a time-related one, or it can just be a, a, an independent review board having the authority to uh, order uh, the mobile phone companies to uh, uh, implement the self-destruction button uh, yeah. when the crisis is passed. Yeah, it's it. a great idea. Great idea. Um, um, I want to I want to come back to the challenges that the pandemic is imposing on democracies, but I've got a really good couple questions about what they're doing to authoritarian regimes. So uh, James asked the following question: When it comes to dealing with broad-based societal crises such as COVID-19, do totalitarian regime, regimes with their top-down command and control government and economic structures have an inherent advantage over countries with open decentralized government and economic structures? Uh, if such an advantage exists, how can countries with decentralized structures neutralize or mitigate that competitive advantage? And Ramon asked the following question, COVID impacts on the authoritarian regimes of Cuba and Venezuela. Have there been any? If so, what are they? How are the really tightly held authoritarian regimes in the, in the world reacting to the pandemic? Okay, well, uh, it is impossible to claim that there is an intrinsic authoritarian advantage for managing a pandemic when you see how many democracies have done a pretty admirable job of doing so, mm -hmm. frankly, in terms of immediate and transparent um, reaction to the first signs of crisis, a much better job than China has done without the cost in terms of human freedom. Now, I will say Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and so on, countries that have had more success, they did have the 2003 experience, Tom, of the SARS epidemic, yeah. uh, and they learned from that uh, uh, about the need for a lot of the measures that I spoke of. Uh, but the claim of intrinsic advantage for authoritarianism uh, simply doesn't wash. And the second question again? 
What's going on in, in places like Cuba and oh. Venezuela? Well, um, you know, it's very hard to know mm-hmm. what is going on with respect to COVID in countries like Cuba and uh, Venezuela because we don't have honest reporting of information. Mm-hmm. And because in Venezuela, the population has been so devastated by hunger and malnutrition uh, that, um, you know, it's hard to know who's dying from what. I will say it is interesting now as you look at these infection rates, and there's actually a website where where I've gotten the data uh, that informs my uh, earlier points. Uh, It is intriguing that countries in the um, equatorial region that Cuba and uh, Venezuela are either in or they border, countries that are more in the hot and humid climates uh, in the global south have not yet been hit with anything like the level of epidemic uh, that Europe, the US, uh, and so on have been. Is that because of uh, their climate? Is it because they just haven't been in the global transmission belts quite as much? Well, it remains to be seen, but it is, uh, it is noteworthy. I will say Iran has been hit pretty hard by this. And uh, again, we don't know what the real rates of infection are because who would believe Iranian state authorities in terms of the accuracy of reporting? Right. And we know there have been no infections in North Korea. Yeah, <laughs> except maybe of the, of the uh, dear leader. leader. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I want to go around. Uh, I want to talk, and I want to get back to democracy and talk about the ways in which the pandemic are threatening the pillars of democracy. So let's talk about a free press and the media. What kind of pressures are being placed on the free press and the media in Western, in democracies generally uh, as a result of the pandemic? And will the free press continue to stay vibrant and, uh, an important part of democracies? Well, I think what we're finding now is a heightened need for an effective, uh, vigorous, independent press. Now, we'd like it to be one that doesn't further feed our political polarization, right? We want pluralism of ideas. We want a contest of perspectives. We're going to have media, print media, online media, television media, that are going to have different editorial orientations, perhaps. But pluralism is crucial. What we don't want is government government threatening that pluralism or threatening um, investigative reporting with laws like uh, what Hungary has passed that threaten five-year prison terms for any, quote, false reporting about the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, who the heck is supposed to determine what's false reporting and what what are inconvenient facts that governments, and especially authoritarian or illiberal governments, don't want their people to know? And again, I'll say um, uh, India has become, I think, an important friend of the United States. Uh, The relationship with India is a very important one, I think. President Trump's trip there was a positive step for the United States. But we do need to be careful not to give Prime Minister Modi a completely free pass uh, while he intimidates critics and tries to suppress media independence in this crisis. That's a very dangerous 
uh, potential uh, trend that could develop in India. Yeah. How, let me ask you one more question about the media. Um, and I asked George Osborne this the other day because he's an editor. You know, one of the one of the responsible acts of of a media in these kind of circumstances is to moderate the dissemination of scientific information about uh, health consequences and the policies that can mitigate or affect the development of the health consequences. It, are free societies better able to manage that than authoritarian societies, or how 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 does how do you balance the need for accurate information? And, and consistent information with the need to have a pluralistic kind of Wild West uh, discussion about what's going on? Well, I think that our major publications, whether their editorial line is in one direction, like the Wall Street Journal, or in the other direction, like the New York Times, um, they've done a reasonably good job of trying to inform their readers of what's in the realm of scientific possibility. We didn't know about hydrochloroquine right. uh, until recently the evidence for it doesn't look very uh, promising. Uh, but, you know, uh, media reporting properly identified it as speculative at best, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Now we're hearing the reporting that Rendisivir, uh, this antiviral drug, is showing some very promising health effects. I think the media have been pretty wise and, and responsible in mm -hmm. reporting the range of possibilities yeah. for when we're, we might have a vaccine to dampen public you know, expectations, but allow for the real prospect of a, of a hopeful and early breakthrough. Uh -huh. Problem with authoritarian regimes is any reporting that is inconvenient any reporting that could cast them in a bad light is suppressed. And right. when you start suppressing uh, reporting, you actually handicap your ability to fight this virus. Mm -hmm. And this is why, well, China, you take for granted that this is the way they operate and the world is paying the price. I think uh, Germany is not going to wind up uh, suing uh, China for damages, but, you know, in a certain moral respect, I think the whole world has a right to do so. Mm -hmm. um, whether the virus emanated from a, a Wuhan wet market or whether it uh, escaped from a, a Wuhan Institute of Vi Virology lab, either way, China's uh, incompetence and suppression of the truth from the beginning contributed to the spread of the virus. So I will just say this because it's been. Tom, so important mm -hmm. in the success story of the democracies like mm -hmm. Taiwan, Korea, and Israel. Transparency, transparency, transparency. Early, truthful, authoritative reporting of what's happening, an intelligent, responsible interpretation. They can question it if they want, but you know, moderation of it by uh, the media has been very crucial in, in battling this virus. And Tom, that brings us to the social media, yeah. where it's much, much more like the Wild West. Yeah. And here I have some hope that um, Facebook uh, is going to be more responsible in vetting some of the uh, information on its website. And yeah. Facebook is moving pretty soon now toward the creation of a uh, independent um, uh, review board for some of its editorial decisions, yeah. 
And I think that could help uh, in moderating this content. Yeah, David asked the question, uh, are you concerned about the danger that private companies like Google, YouTube, Facebook will be censoring actual useful information as opposed to uh, conducting legitimate editorial activities? Well, this brings us to the independent review board. Let's say uh, uh, Facebook decides to take down some post challenging uh, a scientific claim by the government or Mm -hmm. uh, floating a scientific idea that Facebook decides is quackery, and so they're going to take it down. And uh, the thrust of David's question is, isn't that dangerous? The value of where we're headed now with Facebook's voluntary decision to create this independent review board is that the Facebook user, if they have their material taken down, could file an appeal to the new independent appeals board and then they would, they would assess it and there'd be a, a non-corporate uh, body of individuals kind of weighing the evidence and making a decision. Yeah, interesting. Let's move on, let's move on to another important pillar of democracies and that's voting. Uh, obviously the pandemic has affected our physical ability to conduct uh, fair and, and uh, widely subscribed voting uh, and, and elections. Uh, I have a question from Michael, which is, are there any best practices for conducting elections during this public health emergency? I think that um, the clear best practice uh, that uh, is at hand and that most election experts think we should help to uh, rapidly develop in terms of support, technical and financial support, for state and local election administrators to make uh, more broadly available to the public uh, is vote by mail. Just think about it logically. Uh, If we're going to have, you know, even if we make progress, which I believe we will, and in slowing or containing the virus in the coming months, if we're likely to have a resurgence of the virus in the fall of this year, as we did Uh, during the great influenza in the fall of 1918, um, a lot of people are going to be afraid once again to go outside their homes. And we're going to be short of poll workers like we were in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even in cities like Milwaukee, where they reduced the number of polling stations by over 95%. Mm. So if people can vote by by mail, uh, absentee from their homes, uh, put their ballot in a... uh, uh, pre-stamped envelope uh, uh, for free postage and, you know, have the mailman pick it up or put it in a post office box, it's going to be a lot safer, going to be a lot safer. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are going to want to do that. So at a minimum, uh, I think it's very important that we give the states and localities the assistance they want and need to ramp this up as an option uh, for their voters uh, if, they ha- if they want to avail themselves of it. Five states now will vote purely by mail uh, in November of this year. Three that have been, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington. They're going to be joined by two others, um, Hawaii and Utah. Mm-hmm. Utah is an interesting case because, of course, it's a deep red state, pretty faithfully Republican. But uh, county by county, they've been kind of phasing in universal vote by mail. The voters have liked it. Um, It's worked out well. They decided to adopt it at a state level. And our political science colleagues who've evaluated what happened 
when counties in California, Washington, and Utah switched mm-hmm. from uh, uh, voting mainly in person to mandatory vote by mail, what they found is, I think, very encouraging for the current moment, that there was no partisan impact at all, uh, that uh, vote by mail uh, had no effect on the percentage turnout of Democrats versus Republicans. It had no effect on the average electoral results in terms of the balance between the two parties. It seems to be partisan neutral. So if it's partisan neutral, uh, we can all get behind it and improve our safety and the security and legitimacy of the election by having more comprehensive vote by mail. Uh, Michael asked a question about fraud associated with vote by mail. How do you know the person that check the ballot is actually the person who's entitled to make the vote. He, he wants to know, how does one protect against non-citizens voting by mail? Well, they're not going to get a mail ballot. Uh, so I don't think no one has really uh, raised that as a significant concern. I, I think the greater concern is very, very subtle, uh, that there could be households. I don't, uh, uh, I don't, uh, dismiss this, where you've got a kind of authoritarian figure in the household and uh, maybe a kind of traditional father or strong-willed other individual, and they say, I'll I'll tell you how you're going to vote. Give me your ballot. But I think it's going to be, you know, you weigh the downside of every other option. And so the downside of that, I think, is pretty low risk. Yeah. compared to the risk of many people feeling like they can't vote or maybe they're exposing themselves to uh, greater danger uh, by voting uh, uh, in person as seven people uh, at least who voted in Wisconsin uh, came down with COVID yeah. uh, in, in the April primary. Yeah. Larry, uh, Maria wants to know, why, why can't we just vote? Why, why don't we just vote electronically, say, via the Internet? Ah, uh, good. Well, um, I think there will be growing support for uh, internet voting. Uh, Senator Bob Carey authored an op-ed in favor of that. And the answer is very simple. The technology simply isn't there uh, to ensure uh, against fraud and subversion uh, and um, you know, contamination of the vote. It's too, po- it's, it's too easy to hack any uh, internet system even what we thought would be a very secure one, just ask the Pentagon. Uh, and so the best computer scientists in the world and in the United States have a very, very clear stand here. Uh, and it's in two parts. Part one is don't ever hold a vote of consequence that cannot be audited or recounted by a paper trail. And of course, mm-hmm. internet voting can't do that. You'd have to sacrifice the secrecy of the ballot in order to do that. And therefore, number two, uh, don't institute internet voting uh, until we have some technological breakthrough that's not on the horizon. Yeah. Larry, let's, let's talk a little bit about civil society. You know, every democracy depends on a really vibrant civil society of people who concern themselves with public issues and engage in voting and discourse to try to solve pressing social problems. Uh, in many ways, you know, the predicate of a civil society is freedom to assemble, right? And freedom to associate with whom you want. And this pandemic has limited in many significant ways those basic kind of ideas. 
How, how do you see the pandemic undermining uh, the civil society necessary for a vibrant democracy? Well, uh, in several ways, Tom. First of all, there's the danger of legal action by uh, uh, elected and non-elected leaders who want to heighten their power and diminish freedom so that they don't have to suffer criticism and oversight. Secondly, I'm really worried about uh, damage to the resource base of civil society organizations, nonprofit uh, institutions, if I may say so, including think tanks, mm -hmm. universities, uh, and oversight organizations as a result of the uh, economic pain we're going to be going through. And the third thing is a lot of civil society organizations prosper from face-to-face -face interaction, mm -hmm. interpersonal meetings, community action, and by the way, not just to defend democracy. How about to just hand out food to hungry people? Mm -hmm. One of the great crises that food banks are facing right now is not only a shortage of the money to uh, buy the food uh, to distribute, it's also a shortage of volunteers mm -hmm. to actually hand out the food because people are afraid of getting sick. So all of these, are, I think, are dangers to civil society and our community spirit. Yeah. Have you seen any new displays of, of civil interaction that uh, uh, give, you, give you some optimism about the future of our democracy? Yes, um, I have. Uh, and uh, we're all seeing them. Some of them involve these uh, from a distance, uh, celebrations of the amazing work of our uh, medical care professionals and first responders who are being treated like the um, battling heroes that they are uh, when people come to their balconies or play music or applaud them or sing them or or mm -hmm. so on uh, and the musical tributes includes including the amazing uh, musical tribute that uh, CNN hosted a couple weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, Tom, I have to say, I think uh, another reassuring thing is we haven't lost our sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Some of the best humor uh, that I've seen, political humor and just, frankly, almost infantile humor, uh, has been... Um, uh, generated during this pandemic. And if I can just share one example, I think we need a light moment uh, amid this, uh, this grim challenge that we're facing. The New Yorker had a cartoon. Many of us are dog owners, so I think we'll uh, identify with this. They had a cartoon of a bunch of dogs uh, seated around a boardroom with the head dog in your role as director yeah. uh, and a cat at the other end of the... Uh, of the boardroom and the, the director is saying to the other dogs, our COVID-19 plan is working. The humans are staying home. <laughs> and the cat uh, pipes up, why wasn't I consulted about this? <laughs> That's great. That was funny and it's uh, appropriate for the times too. And then of course you neglected to mention the, great, the greatest social innovation of our time and that is the virtual cocktail party that mm -hmm. everybody is attending at least on Friday afternoons. And yeah. I, I we all enjoy those. So anyway. Well, mine is on Thursday afternoon, <laughs> so I'm going to uh, savor it uh, at the end of uh, this day. Great. Larry, that was a great conversation. Thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thank Good. you all.
our, our next Hoover Insider policy briefing will be Tuesday, May the 5th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 12, 2 p.m. Eastern with Dr. Scott Atlas and economist John Taylor. Uh, they will be discussing COVID-19 and the reopening of the economy. This should be a very interesting discussion. Uh, just to remind you, Dr. Scott Atlas is the David and Joan Traytel Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Before coming to Hoover full-time, he had a 25-year career in tertiary care medicine at the top medical centers in the country and served as Chief of Neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. John Taylor is the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institution and a Professor of Economics at Stanford University. John served as Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs under President George W. Bush. Uh, I'm looking forward to my discussion with a preeminent medical doctor and an economist as we examine the salient questions surrounding reopening our economy in a safe and productive manner. You can join Tuesday's briefing at the same link you signed in on today. And you will find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Please stay healthy, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye.